Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin Lu, a screenwriter and producer. I'm Jenny Zhang, a culture writer and critic. This week, we're discussing Beef and Showing Up, a series in a film about characters who orbit around each other as frenemies, or just straight up enemies, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's yeah. let's see how it goes when you hate the fucker. That's fun. <laughs> That's always fun. Uh I'm excited about this episode. I think Me too. I really am excited to talk about beef. Uh and also showing up, to be honest. So yeah, stay tuned, everyone. Yeah. yeah. How's your week been this week? Well, it's allergy season. Uh I think you can tell oh, by yeah. clockwork almost at this time because I think every single year I complain about it on the podcast and here it is again. There you go. If yeah. you have any suggestions for how to treat this, I'm doing Flonase, but even that is still like not 100% working. So I'm, I'm all yeah. ears. I've tried the oral meds. I've tried the Flonase. Like, please give me like homeopathic remedies, anything. Yeah. What's, uh, what's going on with you this week otherwise? I have bought a new memory foam pillow because I'm reaching nice. my mid thirties <laughs> and it's important. Like where, where it and is, how you sleep yeah. is is very very important it's incredibly important so i pulled my neck like two weeks ago and the mm-hmm. pain has not gone away and i've mm-hmm. gotten headaches from it anyway so i got this uh memory foam pillow and it definitely works my neck pain has gone away so have my headaches so shout out however um my spine is very sore because it's not used to being this straight for this long because mm-hmm. uh, i'm a i'm a i hunch over a little bit and i have since i was a kid because um i was a metalhead as a teen so <laughs> y- y- it was a part of the agenda but yeah no it's it's definitely working it's just i feel a little bit tender so welcome yeah. to the 30s kids <laughs> you know if you i highly suggest doing it in your 20s too i think this is generally good yeah. for you uh now for other things going on tell us pelin what did you watch this week Oh, I'm so excited to talk about this. So this week, I finished a show called Beef, which you can find on Netflix. Beef is a dark comedy miniseries, asterisk. Yeah, we'll come back potentially. To that. Um, yeah, created by Lee Sung Jin. Um, there are 10 episodes. They clock in around 30 minutes per episode. And it is starring Stephen Yun as Danny and Ali Wong as Amy. And what goes on in this is that these two people who come from very different lives, they get involved in a road rage incident with one another and then go on to become enemies, basically snowballs and snowballs and snowballs and leads to an ultimately metaphorical car crash. Um, Mm. This show is, I think, just right off the top, one of the most invigorating TV shows I've seen in a while. Mm -hmm. Um, When I saw the trailer, I was very excited because it looked incredible. And obviously we love Stephen Young. Love Ali Wong. So I was really excited to see them together. But, you know, from the first sequence of this show all the way to the penultimate episode, I was pretty much on the edge of my seat, um, gasping intermittently throughout at moments. Um, so I'm so excited to get into this with you, Jenny. Mm-hmm. Did you finish it as well? Or are you done? Oh, yeah. I finished this thing like the weekend it came out. I pretty much finished it in the span of 24 hours, I think. Yeah. yeah Started a yeah. one night, stayed up late got up the next day continued watching uh it's very very good i agree with your adjective just invigorating this is definitely just like a totally fresh and engaging and just uh very very good uh addictive tv show yeah for sure and obviously so much of it is carried by the two leads and the two characters themselves so just to get into them individually as people Danny, Danny Cho. His deal is that his parents' motel business closed down due to a cousin-induced criminal, like just some some kind of criminal activity that happened because of his cousin. They move, his parents move back to Korea and it's kind of on him or he has taken it upon himself to make money from a contracting business in order to bring them back. And like any classic immigrant story, he kind of wants to show them that he's worthy of being the eldest child and is trying to buy, buy a plot of land and build it them a house on it and it's you know it's a distinctly american dream that i i think is kind of true like amongst like first second generation kids um steven young plays him to perfection i think that there are just some incredible line readings which we will kind of get back to and talk about but he i think this 
TV show has confirmed to me that he is 100% one of my favorite actors working right I, now. I love him so much. Um, this was a great comedic role for him because yeah. a lot of his roles have been more dramatic. He can do silly. Like, he, he, he he's done Second City. Like, he's stuck. I mean, he has been on the comedy circuit or, like, in the improv circuit a little bit. But this yeah. is... He plays someone who is rash and a little bit stupid. Very. (laughs) Maybe very bit stupid. Who's like had a very unlucky lot in life, but a lot of it is definitely self-inflicted. Yes. Yeah. He is so funny in this. Like just the, the pure bravado and just like the way he inhabits his character in entirely. It's really very good. Yeah. I I really love, like, there are just times where, obviously, when you're angry, I think in general, as human beings, you kind of look very ridiculous. Like, if you've ever been in a situation where you've let out your anger, like, in in your own private, like, world or private space or whatever, like, you think that you are being menacing or you think that you're, like, there's some kind of outlet, but ultimately you feel quite stupid and you feel like you're throwing a bit of a tantrum. And he depicts that tantrum state so well and Mm -hmm. i don't know there's just like comedy in it because you've been like for anyone that has had to do that whether it's like screaming into a pillow or like in the in the confines of your car just like bitching and like moaning and like making voices to like mimic the other person that you hate so much we've all been there we've all done that so like it's funny because we feel that and we also understand the petulance of it because Mm -hmm. that's what anger is ultimately it's a very petulant emotion especially when it gets out of hand like the way that it does in this um and he just nails it like you're right i think he got his start in improv like at uni like we've seen him in a couple skits and stuff over the years and I, I watched like the first season of Walking Dead, um, mm-hmm. but I think the po- the point in which I was like, this guy's incredible, is probably the film Burning. Burning yeah. Um, yeah, because there was just like clearly like ultimately such a level of intelligence there as an actor, as a performer. And like listening to a lot of the interviews that he's been giving recently um, and in the past, like in his like GQ profile, for example, like he's clearly like very thoughtful about the types of roles that he picks, like the effect that it has on him as a performer. And we love that. Like, I think in general, like love it when an actor like really, really understands the emotional IQ of whatever it is that they're trying to do. And even though this role in Beef is silly, he really taps into something that is underneath all of those layers which is why it's so compelling, which is why you can't, like, take your eyes off of the screen when he's on it. Yeah. And, like, it's it's three-dimensional. It's silly. He is, like, yeah. a very silly person. But also it's it's hard to say who is worse in this, but he arguably yeah. does some stuff that probably could be considered worse. But he is somehow more um, sympathetic as a character as well. And that yeah. just, like, yeah. pulling at your, at your heartstrings and bringing out the the pitiable nature of this character yeah. and how shit yeah. his life has been it is it, it's just like very very good at embodying every single range of emotion of this character in yeah the circumstances. yeah yeah uh shout out steven young michigan representation uh just gotta throw that out there yeah 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 i was gonna say he's I, when i listened to one of his interviews i was gonna text you to be like yo michigan's finest uh there's yeah, someone here that's trying to sure. take your crown <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but no i completely agree with you i think there's there's also something in the dynamic of these two people because of class for example mm-hmm. like that you just can't help but feel bad uh obviously like ultimately worse like his his luck in life is just so much more shit yeah uh just from the from the from the starting point of like where they ended up where they are as adults um moving on to his antagonist amy (laughs) um her deal is that she started i guess a direct-to-consumer like premium plant business in the pandemic Mm -hmm. worked herself tirelessly to ensure its success and would like to sell it off to a billionaire so that she can finally stop working and focus on her daughter, June. She has a really positive woo-woo artist husband who is perfect for her facade, I guess, like in terms of like their their compatibility, but not necessarily her true self. And she resents the constant performance she has to put on both personally and professionally, mm-hmm. um, whether it's like to be this certain 
Asian woman to this white woman so that she can like finally buy her business um, or, or yeah, be a posy vibes crunchy queen for her husband. So let's talk about Ali Wong because mm-hmm. there's a lot going on here. This is her first dramatic performance. Like speaking of, you know, Stephen Yeun making the switch from more drama into comedy here. Uh, it's the opposite for Ali Wong. And like we saw her in her comedy film and she was great in that. But how do you feel about her in this? I wasn't sure what to expect because, yeah, I do know her from the more comedic projects. Um, I didn't know if she would have the full range to be able to mm. get into all this. And I think a, a large part of her role, especially in the beginning, is kind of showing the more exaggerated, a little bit of like characterized side of this character. But as the, the series goes on and progresses, you do see the ways that Ali Wong is being like forced to stretch uh, and and yeah. forced to reach for this interiority and this um, kind of display of finesse and and subtlety and yeah. I think yeah. she is good at playing this sort of more exaggerated side of emotions um, and characters mm-hmm. but I was very pleasantly surprised by her dramatic range as well yeah and I think the role calls for the type of performance that she ends up giving mm-hmm. which is a character that finds it really hard to open up, really hard to express her emotions, really hard to basically speak her mind or, like, truly show the contours of what's going on. Yeah, like, everything is bottled up inside, and that is by by design, again, with the characters and history and personality. Yeah, and I think with Ali Wong, she is generally, when she's doing the more serious side of this role, is quite taut, you know, like, she's quite it's kind of like a, a drum skin, you know, like really being stretched over. You can kind of see it in her face too, where she purses her lips a lot. She's mm. like, she doesn't really like move her mouth too much. Um, and a part of me is like, I think that's just kind of the way she talks and that that's perfect for this role. But I think she really leaned, in, leaned into that and that helped um, with just expressing like, especially in like the therapy appointments, um, the way that the camera and it, the camera usually does this throughout the season is just like really squarely closely on the faces of these yeah. two. And you kind of see the, the, all the folds of her face and what they're, what they're doing. And that requires, that requires a lot of balls to do in a dramatic performance when the camera's like close to your face. I think she delivers. Like I, I, I everyone I think that has seen this is really not necessarily surprised, but is celebrating, um, how well she's done with this. That being said, obviously this this show does call for a lot of comedy and the comedic moments for her character are so fucking good just because she already has that in her you know um the the highlight of it was when in that episode in vegas um when she wags her finger at (laughs) danny i was like because it's in slow motion and you just see her face and it's so (laughs) gleeful and i'm just like oh my god this is perfect and amazing someone should uh gift this immediately so to talk about the show in general i know that we said dark comedy but to me it felt more like a tragic comedy because there's just like a level of like darkness that it goes to that really surprised me how did you feel about the tone and the feel and like the content of the show itself i guess yeah i think i i was also a little bit surprised by how dark it went i loved it to be honest i i I loved where it went uh it especially starts to fly off the rails towards the the second half you see how it just continually snowballs and builds up yeah yeah, throughout the season this whole arc but the the place it goes and like the penultimate episode is just like like wow it's really going for it um yeah Yeah. in a way that even caught me a little bit off guard for the the second to last episode because it it really sort of goes for it i'm not quite sure how i feel about that episode exactly i'm still processing Mm -hmm. it i think but overall i do like the tone the the direction that it's headed that where you can see the acceleration of just like how off the rockers these two people are and how they are just like you know, pulling everything in a downward direction and like everything they're doing is affecting the people around them and inducing terrible behavior from the people around them as well in reaction. You know, the, the, the point where I was like, Oh, this isn't like all the other American dark comedies. This is more like a British leaning dark comedy. The point at which I realized it was like that was uh, the Hibachi grills. Oh, when they reveal why Danny, why he needed them. Yeah. 
yeah, why he needed like that many hibachi grills. I was like, oh, this is what we're doing. Okay, excellent, good. <laughs> and then it kind of like didn't let up really in terms mm-hmm. of that level of like, like where it went, how deep it went. I get what you mean about that penultimate episode. I think it is very, it feels like a different kind of show. Um, yeah, some of the nature of the, let's just say like gruesomeness. Um, yeah, yeah. However, but, yeah. It all makes sense. Like the, the chain of events makes sense. And I think that's like the real mastery of this show is like, even though it gets really ridiculous, there's an explanation for it. It all makes sense in, in within the realms of this world, within the realms of these characters. Um, so you kind of, you take it for its word, essentially. Um, so moving on to, you know, just putting the, the writing of the show under a bit of a magnifying glass. Um, the way that these two characters orbit around each other is truly incredible because mm-hmm. by the time the show is done, you realize that they haven't had a proper conversation until the very last episode. And they haven't spent that much time together. Like there's a lot of assumptions being made in the first couple of episodes. And then when they find out more and more about the other person, it's almost like they weaponize this and they just don't know how to fall out of the pattern of their behavior. But they're the way that, I think the writing led us to understand that even though they're not in the same room together, the other person is with them at all times because they are the like the harbinger of their anger or they're the person to blame. And I just thought it was like so, so well done. Um, the, the reason why the writing is so good, I think, is because Lee Sung Jin, like aka, I think they call him Sonny, um, he has actually a pretty deep bench of TV writing experience. So he wrote on, like, It's Always Sunny, um, Two Broke Girls, plus a bunch of other shows. So you can tell that he kind of, like, knows how to map a season out, but also yeah. maintain the fact that he has, like, two protagonists, essentially, to kind of, like, bounce off of one another. Yeah, I think I found each episode to be... I mean, it was just, like, a perfectly structured show. Like, each episode, you have these very specific, you know, machinations and plot advancement and character advancement to get through, and so each episode feels incredibly vital. I thought it was a great choice to kind of pull you in, hook you in with this road raid incident and the escalation from the top. And then it actually takes a little while to get more into the characters' backstories. But the backstories like explain a lot of things perfectly, a lot of things that we had already gotten hints of and, you know, references to, but that sort of fleshes out the whole story, the context behind like why they are the way they are, which is like pretty yeah. fucked up. I yeah. thought it was very good and kudos to, to Lee Sun Jin. Yeah, like star making, I think he can basically, he's got like the Phoebe Waller-Bridge effect. Like he can yes, kind of go on to do whatever the fuck card. he wants now. Yeah, um, I do have one little critique about that whole like backstory thing. By the time it was done, I felt like I understood Danny really well and understood his psychology. Mm-hmm. a lot but I, I didn't really get that that much from amy um i think you know i i love that she when she talks to her husband is like i don't think it's my parents i think this is just how i am i like yeah. that because there, there was like an element of like sometimes you're just a dickhead and it's just like that's how you were born and that's yeah. like what you have to deal with for the rest of your life and i love that they gave that to the to the female character in this but I, I don't I do know, th- I just... Yeah, I, I do think Amy got, like, kind of the, a little bit shorter shrift. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, Danny gets this, quote-unquote, great backstory. Like, he gets a very tangible backstory. Like, something yeah. that, you know, we you can use the shorthand, like you said, like American Dream, to kind of paint the picture of why he is the way he is. You can point to, like, the loneliness. Um, you can point to... It's just, like, a, a, it feels more concrete and, like, tangible as yeah. a backstory, as like a rationale for why he is the way he is. Yeah. Versus Amy, it's a little bit harder because again, like we're butting up against the class difference. We're yes. butting up against like, okay, yeah. well, her life, maybe her childhood was not the best, but it was actually fine. fine. It seems yeah. like fine. It's yeah. something that seems a lot more run of the mill. Like more people probably have just experience that in general or like i didn't yeah. become a a fucking like road rage <laughs> like monster over yeah. this it, yeah. it's yeah. a little bit harder to use that to justify the extreme lengths that she goes to mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. yeah yeah 
it's a little bit harder of a, a, I a connection, I think. Yeah. I still but, get it. I think, yeah. like, the universality with her, like, even though it's very specific, especially to, like, Ali Wong, too, is as women, I think we, yes. for the most part, end up uh, squeezing ourselves into a corner that we then fucking hate and then resent the fact that we have to figure out a way to get out from. Um, mm-hmm. It feels like societal pressure. It feels like pressure from everybody around us. And all these expectations that are put on us as like, whether it's a daughter or a wife or a mother or like whatever it might be. And then you realize that you've lost your sense of self and you actually don't know what it is that you want. And then now you're pissed because it's still ultimately on you to figure yeah, out. Someone I, doesn't just I tell you. Totally. I think it was definitely leaning in that, in that direction. It was just a little yeah. bit more um, suggested or ge- yeah, yeah, gestured at rather than yeah. like sort of outlined very, very clearly. Yeah, totally. But ultimately, I think I was a little bit disappointed by like where she landed pre finale episode you know what i mean like there was an element of her like still wanting things that i wish she didn't want anymore like i really just wanted her to leave george like i just i think it was like i think you guys are done dude like i don't see this marriage kind of going anywhere and i was a bit annoyed i guess that she still wanted to make it work but again i think that comes back to like her feeling like she's rotten and he's good and she needs him around to kind of prove to herself that she's good, which again also happens a lot in relationships, you know, and it's usually the other way around. It's usually men that do that kind of line of thinking. Um, so elephant in the room, representation. <laughs> how do you feel about how this depicts like Asian Americans and I guess Asian American like characters? Well, the thing I guess to understand about this is like in interviews, Lee Sunjina said, you know, I didn't want to do this basically as like a, this is not necessarily, you know, an Asian American production. It's not an Asian capital right. Asian American um, TV show. He, he said like, I wanted to focus on the story and the characters first before, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about like, what does this mean for Asians and representation and, um, you know, the yeah. Asian American of all of it. And yeah. I think that explains exactly how it got to where it was where which is mm-hmm. a very well written well produced tv show that stars asian americans it's about asian americans it is very some of the the things in it in the story and the characters are very specific and recognizable to asian americans yeah but it doesn't yeah. place that at the forefront at the expense of story and character it doesn't use it as like yes. a, a shortcut which I'm not saying others do necessarily, but I mean, others do uh, some, a lot of other stuff. It does hundred percent others do. Yeah. So yeah. this is, I thought it was really excellent because one, it's an excellent TV show Two, like the things that about these characters and about their lives and their stories, the things about them that are Asian American, that it is so integral to the, the characters and the story, but it's not, in a way that feels phony or artificial or, you know, performative or anything like that. It's so clearly by like an Asian American creator and inhabiting the world of like these California Asians, which is like a big part yeah, of it. Yeah. But it is, yeah. they're always like, it's always a part of, you know, one who is Asian American. That's always a part of you, but it's not um, the sort of end all be all of it. Like that is just yeah. like the, the underlying core of it but it's not the only thing that defines it and that is what i think makes it so strong a hundred percent is the texture of it it isn't the flesh and blood of it necessarily you know in terms of like the emotional core one thing that i talked about with a friend recently is like it just felt like it didn't care about the white gaze and i think that's what a lot of shows these days feel like they have to do whether it's to sell the show whether it's to increase the white gates of the audience or the studio executive that decides that they need something explained to them and made very, very clear. It doesn't do any of mm-hmm. any of that. So I think it's wild that we're celebrating something that should just be the bare minimum, but we are <laughs> uh, in that creators should just feel like they do something that is true to them without feeling like they have to explain themselves to anybody apart from the people that, that understand it. You know what I mean? Like something that I found really interesting was the Korean church mm-hmm. thing that is a part of it 
so many people on my timeline that are Korean American were just like, holy shit. And like also not even Korean American, like just evangelical Christians uh, that grew up in churches like this, where they were just like, holy shit, this is nailing exactly what it feels like. Like as someone that grew up in this, that one scene with Steven Yeun when he's like crying is, I think a lot of people were just like, if you've never been in a church like this, this is the draw and this is what like kept us in it if we are now out of it and this is why we keep staying in it if we're still in it and i just thought that was like as someone that didn't grow up in a, in a korean church like do, isn't like korean american i just totally get that moment and i like cried my eyes out in that scene like there's just something really like it's a light touch in a way that feels like just enough um yeah. for those that are not a part of this world but like feel so exacting to those that are right. um and that is really hard to do yeah really done and, well. and once yeah. again like a light touch but still like uh just naturally like innately part of yeah. the fabric of this whole thing um, yeah everything yeah like very exacto knife <laughs> yeah everything yeah. from that to even just like jokes that like whiz by and and reference like yeah uh, <laughs> I knew I would love the show. I think when from from the moment when um, Danny like sneaks into uh, into Amy's home and and asks about her husband and is like, <laughs> oh, he's Japanese. It's like, oh, all right, <laughs> and that explains everything. That's it. That's an insider <laughs> intel kind of question, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and just just yeah. everything about it, and even the way it like it pokes fun at this idea of sort of performative uh, representation or solidarity um like mm-hmm. even the way that it has these characters naomi and amy like sort of vying for the spot as like the resident asian american woman on the street on this like billionaire right. millionaire street like that is yeah. so again exacting so good so uh cutting um again it's not necessarily speaking to a white audience with that um or a mainstream audience yeah. or a non-asian audience but that it's just like details like that are so very good uh so yeah i loved it completely yeah. and i think it's a, a great work on that front as well we, yeah for sure um ending what are your thoughts on the ending yeah next question do you think there's going to be a second season mm-hmm. right well I, ending was really interesting because it could very easily have been cut off after episode nine like you get the classic mm-hmm implied demise of these two people who have been basically like rolling towards mutual selfish or destruction the whole time but then it goes that final episode is completely different because it's like what do you do yeah. after that with these people who are codependent in a way um also like hating each other but obsessed with each other what do you do when you like strand them together um without anyone else and they have to rely on each other it was really interesting i i thought the place where it ended was good i thought the journey to get there was i didn't wasn't sure that i liked it at first but um i think actually i'm fine with it yeah it feels like a closed loop yeah a little bit of background information he apparently wrote the season finale while they were still in production Mm. um and he also has three seasons mapped out oh really with the same characters Um, with the same characters. No way. Makes sense. Is it renewed yet for season two? No, no. So it hasn't been renewed. And okay. I think when they were doing the press materials for this, it was meant to be a limited series. Yeah. Like, it's meant to be a mini series. I would love for it to be that way. You know, like me and Jenny champions mm-hmm. of just knowing when to quit. Yeah. Um, not to say that I don't want these two on my screen again. I 100% do. I think the writing is probably going to be good. However... It feels, you know, it's just it feels such a masterpiece. Fine. Yeah, it feels done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to give a huge shout out to young Mazzino as Paul. I think he was really, really great. Um, but I love this show so much. Truly, truly like something I think is probably going to make it in my top five of the best TV shows of the year. Um, but I will be going to Burger King today um, and I will see you all there. <laughs> Cheers. So what did you watch this week, Jenny? I watched Showing Up, which is a film that is out in theaters right now. This is, to be specific, Kelly Reichardt's latest film. Yes. It's written by her and her regular collaborator, John Raymond, and it's, of course, directed by her. So in this film, Michelle Williams stars as Lizzie, an artist who sculpts outside of her day job doing 
administrative stuff at an art school. Uh, and other people in Lizzie's orbit include her next door neighbor slash landlord slash fellow artist, Joe, played by Hong Chao. Uh, Lizzie's divorced parents, played by Marianne Plunkett and Judd Hirsch. And Lizzie's brother, Sean, played by John McGarrow. So this is like, I, I think a lot of Kelly Reichardt's work, kind of a deceptively quiet movie. It's a portrait of like a character or a place or a scene. And in this case, it's a study of Lizzie and the idea of the working artist nowadays and the Portland art scene as well. It, I guess, wouldn't probably strike most people as very thrilling or exciting, but (laughs) especially with, it has kind of a slow start, I think, and a very studied and deliberate slow start. But the human drama, which is like very modest and very everyday, but human drama, nevertheless, it slowly creeps up on you. And I think that is part of the beauty of a film like this. Yes. Uh, so yeah, Helen, when did you see this? And what was your just like top line initial thought about it? Yeah, so lo- I, I saw this last week in the cinema, I went to the Angelica Q&A with Kelly Riker oh, cool. afterwards. Yeah. And um, yeah, man, I mean, I, lo- I love Kelly Riker. I-, I think a lot of her work is not for everybody. Um, if you need a thrilling, very taut three-act structure, uh, this is not it. This is more of just spending time with characters and spending time in a world and a place. When I saw the trailer for this, I will say it was definitely a different tone to what I'm used to with her. She's usually quite serious. It's more like drama-leaning. And when I saw the trailer, I was like, oh, this is leaning a little bit more comedy, uh, it seems. Or like there seems mm-hmm. to be like a very clear agenda of what this film is trying to do and say which you don't get that clear of an agenda with her previous films and like by the time the film like i mean don't get me wrong like in the middle of the film i was like i love this film um, but, but that didn't change and i love yeah like i I love it i think there's just something distinctly beautiful about the normalcy of this person and her life and what it says about art and making art and yeah having relationships um within this kind of world uh yeah it's it's really it's kind of like sat in me really peacefully and and i think about it every now and again Uh, especially when i'm like writing myself i'm just like oh yeah this is yeah yeah Yeah, i mean we we love to talk about art and craft and creativity we i think i can speak for both of us when i say we have a soft spot for films and, and shows that depict stuff like this like art as not just like this this grand thing or this like um operatic like obsession or something but art as just like an everyday practice like a meditation as, as a way to interact with the world and other people around you especially things when like those artists and creatives as most of them are today they're just like regular people they're just like humbly toying around in the background in everyday life, um, trying yeah. to work on what actually brings them joy and makes them feel alive while having to balance like, okay, this is, this is what I do to pay the bills. This is how I, I have to like deal with this family stuff. I have to, you know, deal with this day job. I have to do all these other things. Um, Patterson, which we talked about in a previous episode, mm, yeah. it hits on like a similar, just like subject and tone of like, this yeah. is, this is a regular everyday creative and this is what they have to do to keep their art alive. I want to talk about Lizzie because she is of course central to this whole thing. Yes. This character and the way that Michelle Williams brings her life, I thought was just so brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lizzie is so funny. She is, she's hilarious. She's, yeah. <laughs> she's kind of, I guess what you would describe her as like, she's, she's kind of a drip to be honest. She's always oh, like, yeah. She's always a little bit petulant, a little bit sulky, a little bit dour. Always scowling. Presents herself as a little bit frumpy. Yeah, a little bit scowling. Like, the way she talks is not, like, the most polite (laughs) or tactful. Yeah. Um, But she clearly also cares a lot. Like, maybe reluctantly at first or, like, grumpily at first. But she does really care. She cares about her art. She cares about her family. She cares about this, like, random pigeon that, Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, falls into their life. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I thought the way that Michelle Williams performs her is, like, this, the physicality of it was really good. Like, you see this terrible posture, stump shoulders, just, like, this way that she carries herself in the world is just, like, completely different from 
I mean, obviously this is what actors do, but it's just completely different from like other Michelle Williams roles. Well, and it is what actors do, but like sometimes they don't, you know, sometimes actors are too self-conscious about how they look and about making like uglifying themselves without using prosthetics, you know, like Mm -hmm. Michelle Williams is beautiful. She's always been beautiful. And for the first time in this film, I was like, you kind of look regular, dude. And it's because of her (laughs) performance. Like she just kind of looks like any average girl i just was fascinated but like there's this one moment jenny you know in um mm-hmm. you know when she first takes her figure like her little figurines out of the kiln like for the first mm-hmm. time and she's just like mouth breathing <laughs> and she's like <laughs> she's like mouth breathing and like so happy yeah. with how they turned out and it's just like quiet there's no music and she's just like heavy breathing really excited and happy and like you see how excited she is and like yeah. i was cracking it wasn't funny i was the only person laughing in there but i was like holy shit she's really doing <laughs> it's it kind like of funny. Yeah, she's yeah. she's taking it like michelle williams like really taking it there as like just <laughs> a heavy breathing nerd looking at her stuff getting really excited i, was, I know I was having a great time man she's great yeah and the way, yeah, every time she looks at her art and when she's making her art and like lovingly sort of adjusting these yeah. fucked up arms or something of these like yeah. kind of beautiful, kind of ugly little, little figurines. Uh, that's really just like an artist who is so totally enamored with their work and what they do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought that yeah. was a really beautiful portrayal. I really loved how it grappled with the question of like, how much work you put into your art versus mm-hmm. the distractions of daily life. Yeah. Um, that that tension is so real for any working artist or anyone that spends any kind of time on their creativity can attest to, it, you know, it's a constant battle between like all the errands that you have to run and all the mm-hmm. distractions that come across and like you trying to be this higher version of yourself that just yeah. focuses on this thing that you philosophically value most above anything Mm -hmm. you know they show that really well like in these again these scenes where lizzie is having to try to like carve out time to do her work but also in the character of joe like having joe as lizzie's foil is very very good um hong chow is fantastic as his character yeah but just that idea of like envy professional envy personal envy yeah like lizzie is I mean, there's an empower imbalance between them to begin with. Like, Joe is Lizzie's landlord. And not a very good landlord either, it sounds like. Like, her hot water has been broken for, like, a week or something. And every time Lizzie goes to complain to Joe, Joe's like, ah, yeah, I'll get around to it. But I have, like, I have a show. I actually have two shows. You only have one show. Yeah. Uh, Which is so good. Um, But, yeah, like, you, as an artist, like, the way that fits in, like, Lizzie feels part of the way she feels about Joe because she's like, you know, she really, she has it all figured out. Like, she yeah, yeah. she has this, like, passive income. I have to pay her. Like, she has time to do her art just, like, full time. That's what she does. And that's, like, she has her whole, that's, that feels nice, right? That yeah. she has it all figured out. That's, like, the yeah. key to being a, you know, a full-time working artist. Like, to, yeah. to do that, to have that, the, the means to be able to be a landlord yeah so um in the panel kelly reichardt talked about how Mm. they based that on a literal female working artist that Mm. bought up a house and rented it out or like apartments or something and rented it out because her whole thing was like yeah this is passive income i can just like focus on my art full-time but what ended up happening was obviously being a landlord is a full-time job and uh that ended up like all her tenants problems and drama ended up like taking up and oh. she wasn't able to eventually do that which i was just like good <laughs> like there was a part of me that was just like that's what you get uh for trying to do it through <laughs> capitalist means um anyway basically like i just i love that dynamic too so much but i think the thing that i love the most um creatively like on kelly reichardt's part was like picking the type of art that these artists make and how it represents them as as people yeah you see joe's art takes up a lot of space it's very physical there's a lot of like mixed media going on like yeah it is it is the kind of thing that you know people like installations like those are things that draw crowds um they like things that take up space that are bright that that do use these different kinds of media and like yeah 
it's kind of more of a crowd pleaser in a way. Yes. Um, you could argue it as more like conceptual and abstract and like yes. there is maybe some like sort of intellectual thought going on behind that. Yes. Like it's yeah. the, the, the creative genius. Yeah. yeah. And like the way that Joe <laughs> creates like one piece is like so physical. Like she uses her whole body mm-hmm. to like wrap this thing round in barbed wire and then eventually mm-hmm. paint it. And then obviously versus Lizzie who whose art is very like finger work because it's clay clay models and then takes up very little space like her show at the end is like tiny tiny space (laughs) it's like one table yeah yeah and it's like it's such a reflection of who they are as people too um are you more of a lizzie or more of a joe would you say i think like in terms of well, no, I'm going to be honest. I'm, I would I would be more of a Lizzie. Maybe I would want to be more of a Joe. I probably yeah. want to be more of a Joe. But yeah, I'm just 100%. like, yeah. I am like that person who is like slumped in and like withholding and like everything is like inside. And then yeah. Yeah. I feel that the things I do are just like of such humble nature. And then I want to be like the loud big showstopper i want yeah. people to be like oh wow she's a genius i'm gonna give her a catalog i'm gonna give her yeah, two yeah, shows yeah. <laughs> yeah. but i i don't know maybe this is just like the lot in life but what about you um same i think i see, I a, li- am, I see a little bit of joe in you though i try babe i try mm-hmm. it's really hard i think uh 90 of the time i'm a lizzie for sure i, ha- I hold a lot of envy I've got to say, like, I'm a oh, jealous absolutely. person. I'm so jealous yeah, all the time. I, all the time. I'm like, I, I really struggle to just let myself do my thing without comparing myself to other people. Um, and, you know, there's also like a little bit of like snobbishness that I think Lizzie has that I also have where it's like, how come yeah. you get that when my, not, not that it's like your art is necessarily better than mine, but like, it's not that good. Like anybody can, you know, like I do that a lot, <laughs> which is like really bad vibes on my part. But um, I try to be Joe because I think everybody should try to be Joe. I think it's like, yeah. that's the point in which you should, as a creative, like not give a shit, kind of do your thing. Um, I want to quickly say something about Joe and then we can move on. There's like one detail in this film that I'm obsessed with that I keep thinking about. You know, mm-hmm. when... Um, Joe wakes up the next day after spending the night with the kill guy, played by Andre oh, 2000, by the way. Oh, she goes to look for way. her phone. Yeah, when she goes to look for her phone and it's just under the truck, I was like, there is just yeah. something so specific and exact about that type of girl where she's just totally, like, just free falling and, like, doesn't give a shit about the details, doesn't seem to, like, worry too much about everything that, he, that she has to do or, like, should do. She just, like throws her phone under a truck and then finds it the next day yeah yeah it's the 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 ease and effortlessness it's perfect because you get to see that from lizzie's side which is like how come you get to keep your phone like how come you can be that reckless and it still works out for you um which is which is very very true but i thought it was also like really smart how they they did take the time to show joe's less positive traits to reeling themselves like as the film progresses especially in contrast with lizzie um specifically over this pigeon that they both have more or less adopted like in the beginning like it's like joe who is the savior the hero she's like i got i gotta care for this pigeon like please he needs us and lizzie is like really like come on like reluctantly taking it on but then it's like very clear who is more emotionally invested in the pigeon who has putting more care and obsessing over the pigeon in a way. It's like the, I mean, Lizzie is a curmudgeon, but again, this like shows where her heart and her care actually come from. And Joe is this wonderful, well-meaning, like generous seeming, you know, granola kind of crunchy goddess. But Actually, there's a lot of carelessness involved in that as well, and just exactly. like under the, yeah. the the charisma. Yeah, and it, it is about that cl- carelessness in general. Like I initially loved how that worked out because at first you could say that like the reason why Lizzie is doing what she's doing is because she's trying to prove a point to herself and also to Joe that you know like it's just something that like like my mum does a lot which is you know like give it to me give it to me i'll do i'll do it i'll do it and like Mm -hmm. there's like a power dynamic that shifted where i'm then the child and then she's obviously the mother 
uh, and I'm always going to need her and she's always going to be the more responsible one. And like you see that in this dynamic too, where it's like Lizzie, at first it's Lizzie trying to, I think, prove a point to Joe. But in the end, like the way that that arc of that, that bird ends up where she shows up at the at the show um it got me really emotional like i was like you know when she showed up uh she brought the bird to to lizzie's mm-hmm. show i was like oh like they see each other like they actually yeah do like each other yeah um, underneath yeah. it all they are they are peers and they are like friends you could say like yeah yeah it's just sometimes it's a weird dynamic sometimes there is like envy or like resentment or like just like not totally vibing and, and jiving all the time, but but they are at least like peers, and, and you know that that means something. Yeah, because ultimately the core of who they are is the, they're two artists that deeply care about their art, you know, yes. and that's just something that they respect in one another. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I also want to just end with like a an appreciation for how this film delves into this this idea of like the the Portland local art scene, which is exactly what you would imagine it to be yeah. like, especially with this art school like it yeah. and it kind of gently pokes fun at it like it there are all these shots of interpretive movement and just like all these different vignettes of the different kinds of art and craft that go on this place um some of them a little more funny seeming than others but it's also very much uh imbued with love for this and, and for yeah, art and for the people who make yeah. the art yeah it's a lot yeah. of affection yeah and it, and the height of affection is being able to poke fun at, fun at yes, it, you know. Um, I think so. Yeah, it's sad that school apparently is a closed, a now closed art school. Really? In, in Portland, yeah. Like I think it closed a couple of years ago. That is um, sad. So they used the space um, to do the shoot and mm. called in like a bunch of art students from like surrounding area art mm. schools. No, I I loved it too. I think there's um there's just something I think really fascinating about like what it says about the celebration of art and the practice of it there's you know you see the day-to-day like they're just trying shit out like i was very jealous of these kids straight up just like going to school just to try things out to see how it looks because that's ultimately what the process of of art making is all about that's 90 percent of it but then there's also like the the side of it where like once it's out in the world then what do you do like i found it was really interesting that lizzie was being celebrated by people around her like with mm-hmm. like the resident artist for example and yeah. she just like didn't know how to get what outside to do of herself yeah. yeah to just be like yeah cuz there's like a pr thing that you have to do like you have to market your art as well whereas like joe is very good at that you know mm-hmm. she's very good at just being who she is and like talking to all the people and and networking and like being in the mix and everybody loves her for it you know um whereas i think with lizzie it's um you know with lizzie she just doesn't know how to celebrate her own work in a way that feels true to herself um Mm -hmm. but eventually like you you know you get to see you get to see it a little bit at the show yeah you have if you have people believe in you you have loved ones you have friends like it's really nice to see that people showed up for lizzie and and this film is called showing up so there you go (laughs) there you go (laughs) So this week in Culture Notes, we're just going to talk about how people have been reacting to these rumors that Timothy Chalamet is dating Kylie Jenner. So this started out (laughs) where most of these things do on a Domar anonymous tip that said that Timmy Chalamet was in Aspen together with Kylie Jenner at the same time because they were having a secret vacation together without telling anyone. And... Of course, the fans, the people that care about these things did the thing that they do, which is match up photos and locations. And (laughs) turns out it kind of checked out. It checked out. They were in Aspen at the same time. Whether or not they were there as lovers slash friends slash people dating with each other, who's to say? The main thing I wanted to talk about with this is like the reaction. I think a lot of the reaction has been like first off like, what the fuck? Um, I mean, these two are very famous. Both of them are very famous in their own right. They seem on surface level to just be entirely different worlds and spheres, yeah. like miles, miles, miles apart. Um, I think a lot of people are like, like, damn, Chris Jenner is like working harder than the devil again. Yeah. Um, and also like a lot of Timothy stands are like, 
he is like above Kylie Jenner. Like I can't believe he would get involved with the family. It's, it's a lot of freaking out because again, like these are two very big stars um, in very different realms. Probably you could say like close to heights of their careers. It's wild. I think I was caught off guard when I first saw this too. I, I am kind of like a Timmy, Timmy Stan. I'll say I, I, yeah. I like, I like his work. I like just like, Saint Timmy. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> he's our corny little king. He's, he's, our, he's our little, little yeah. French, half French, like LaGuardia king. Like, I don't know. Yeah. He's, yeah. The thing about Timmy is that he is at his heart, like, he's a New York kid. He's, um, he's kind of a corny kid. Like, he, yeah, he's very try hard, but he has this reputation and like image, I think, of being much more refined than he actually is, which is just like a normal 20 something year old dude. But, yeah, like this somehow seems like a, a grounding or a bringing back to reality, if this is true. I think people forget that he has had like kind of a messy dating history or like messy paparazzi photos of his dating history previously. For so sure. it's like, don't really remember or choose not to remember his like romantic entanglements a lot. It's it's just like the, the idea that we have of two of these people individually. Like, I think something that uh, someone said on Twitter was like, these two aren't even in the same universe as, as like, as each other, which is very true. Cause I think like with Tim, he is perpetually a teen boy. Like, he's so skinny. My man is never going to get gains. Like, he's just, he's just always he better not, like, like a teenager. Don't, yeah. don't get Jack, please. Like, what is he like 25? Like, he's not a kid anymore, but I do think that there's something going on with the kylie end of it where you know in general the the jenna kardashian sisters like as soon as they're reported with someone they have a certain stigma um and i think it's uh where, you know just b- based off of who they are i think people just assume that it's a pr move on the yeah, end of, like, yeah chris jenna and there's also like just something disappointing that happens especially if like a certain athlete is reported with someone and anyway it's like it's like a mm-hmm. whole thing like people don't People think that being seen with them, especially if you come from the world of Timothy Chalamet, is a It's like a downgrade. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there's like this thing that the Kardashian Jenner sisters do where if one of them lucked out or did well with a certain type of man, the other ones also then follow suit. Does that make sense? But yeah, haven't people said like they're in their like white boy era skinny boy, now? Yeah, skinny skinny white boy era because obviously Travis Barker married Courtney. So Kim I think did what's going on Pete Davidson for a bit. Kim did Pete Davidson, yeah. Um so I think this is kind of where they're going. So you know, if this is true, great, <laughs> I guess. Uh and if it isn't, then good job everybody on the gossip circuit. Just uh, a little programming note. We are going to be off for the next two weeks as far as main podcast episodes go. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going on vacation, so that's why. Yes. But in the meantime, we are still doing Succession send-off. Yes. So actually, you will get the pleasure of hearing Pellin cover Succession yes. send-off. Um, potentially Pellin plus guest for the next a uh, couple weeks after yeah. this yeah tbd listen in to find out <laughs> yes listen to find out um and we will return on may 9th with a regular release as scheduled so stay tuned for that yeah. keep sending us recommendations keep listening to succession send off keep emailing us or saying hi at criticism is dead at gmail.com or find us on instagram and twitter it's <laughs> criticism is dead all one word I'm sorry if you can hear my laughter. It's because I'm messing this up and Pellin will edit this out. Um, for extended it's show right, notes. Right, we'll get in there. <laughs> including links to everything we've been talking about and more. Check out criticismisdead.substack.com. Uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Five stars only, please. Uh, tell a friend about us. Just give us a shout out. Thank you so much. As always, uh, we will see you later on Succession Send Off. Yeah. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin-Lu and Jenny Jijon. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Lu.